Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto and Christopher Hurtado. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss. But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Christopher Hurtado, and it is my pleasure to be joined today by Latter-day Peace Studies co-founder and former co-host with my co-host Riley Risto of this podcast, Shiloh Logan. Good to have you back with me, Shiloh. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it was uh, qu- quite the the name of titles or quite the list of titles there. Yeah, Riley's on vacation in Hawaii. Thanks for, and you know, we were going to record this episode with you regardless. Uh, we we're going to have you as a guest. Now you're a guest co-host, and we've been talking about doing this for a long time. We're going to talk about Satan. Your brother from another mother is what we've been saying. Why do you say that? What does that mean? Yeah. Um, brother from another mother. It's just something that kind of came to me. Satan is this really interesting concept to me and, and not Satanism. You know, Satanism is, is a new thing that's come about in America, but no, the intellectual history of Satan. Where did Satan come from? And where did that idea come from? And, and where, what's the source of evil? And, and how did that whole thing originate? But within the Latter-day construct and cosmology, you know, we ha- it's very unique because in the Latter-day Saint construct, Lucifer was a son of God, right? He was, he was right there. He was a brother to, to Jesus and to Jehovah. And so in the kind of in the, the Mormon construct there, I kind of joked a little bit that he must have had a different mother than I did. So <laughs> he's, he's my brother from another mother. Or maybe he's, I go. don't know, maybe he's the brother from the same, but that would make sense too. So. Yeah, let me get something else out of the way. In, in saying we're talking about Satan, we don't want the title to get too long. We're going to call this episode about Satan, but we're here to talk about Satan, the devil, Diabolos, Lucifer, Mephistopheles, the accuser, the destroyer, the executioner. What, what are we talking about here? Yeah. What are, what are we talking Diabolos? about? Diabolos? Did I say Diabolos? Diabolos, right? Where we get the devil from? You know, Greek? Yeah, so it's it's really interesting. I have absolutely loved going through and studying the history of the devil. Now, I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself a full scholar on this yet, especially of where it deals with antiquity. My my main point of studying it really comes down to to how it develop, develops within America and the American construct. But, you know, we're going to be talking today really about how this, the origin of this start and and then kind of how it came to us and how this has evolved over time. Until we get into, you know, we can maybe if we have some time, get into some Latter-day Saint narratives about Satan and how that uh, pertains and where we can find that in the Book of Mormon. But yeah, once we get back into the origins of Satan in the Old Testament, yeah, it looks completely different than it does to us nowadays, doesn't it? Yeah. So I guess the question is, where the hell does Satan come from? <laughs> I couldn't resist. You couldn't resist, could you? <laughs> no. Uh, so, you know, it's... it's re- I'll probably hear from my wife on that it, one. As, as well you should. Um, so yeah, where do we begin the conversation? Now, modern scholarship has been kind of really sparse on this, this issue. There's been a, a few dominant authors, but the one author in scholarship that, is, that everybody is pointing to right now came out with a book, and I think it was in 2019, and his name is Ryan Stokes, and he just writes a book. It's called Satan, 
how God's executioner became the enemy. And so that's really where I'm tending my marching orders today from, from how this develops in antiquity. But originally speaking, in the Old Testament and in Hebrew, Satan was just a servant of the court of God, as it were. He was... Uh, now, now, Ryan Stokes has really kind of taken a different approach to it than, than most scholarship. Most scholarship right now is really aiming at calling Satan the accuser. And, and in fact, when I was doing Come Follow Me and when I've been on here, on here with you guys before, you know, that's how we've typically talked about Satan is the accuser. And I think that's right. But Ryan Stokes really adds this other element of the executioner. And the executioner really back in, in antiquity, you know, Pre the Babylonian captivity, Satan is really going to be the person of the council of God that goes out and actually enforces a lot of God's will and, and kind of is the one who executes the will of God, as it were. Oh, okay. So you're not talking about a grim reaper chopping people's heads off or something like that. Well, well he could. You know, that, that, that's part of where we get the executioner from. But no, he's more of like an executive, someone who's going out to execute the will of God, you know, either in punishment or in some kind of executive fashion to, to bring punishment to the wicked. Right. And then this could could include killing them. Oh yeah, totally. That could include absolutely killing them. And, and this is really kind of where the, the five books of Moses, this is, this is really kind of the idea that you get all the way through that narrative, but it begins to change in Job because the, it's not Satan as a person. And that's one of the things we have to kind of differentiate at the beginning is Satan is not a person. It's more of like a, and it's not really even a title. It's more of this descriptor of the person who does the things, right? <laughs> the person who executes the things. And I guess in that way, it's kind of a title, but it's more of this, this, the person who's going out to do these things. And, and this changes in Job because, and, and this has always been the question, how did Satan end up in heaven? Because under the LDS construct, Satan got cat kicked out of heaven, right? So how did he end up back in heaven? And why is God having this conversation with Satan? And it's complicated in the LDS construct, but once we take it out of that and we kind of take it back into antiquity to what they were talking about, Satan had not been—he wasn't evil. There was no evil idea here. And in our modern construct, we look back in like Genesis in the Garden of Eden story, and we see the serpent doing the serpent things, and we go, oh, well, that's Satan. That's how we talk about things now. And that idea, though, of the serpent being the evil person or being there in the Garden of Eden and that being um, Satan— wasn't an idea until the first century CE. So until about within about a hundred years after Jesus. Yeah. So it's interesting that we can, we, what we see is that we read the devil back into the Genesis, into the garden story, right? That he's there, that, that, that serpent is Satan, is Lucifer, as it were, eventually, right? This son of the morning, this fallen angel. And we'll have to get to where that comes from too. Uh, how do we disentangle all of this? It's it's going to take us a little time here, but I think it shows us an example. If we can if we can look at another example of how we read things backwards in that way, we could actually do it differently, couldn't we? We could actually say, you know, there's a serpent that's held up as a savior. That the serpent becomes a type of Christ later on when Moses holds up the staff with the serpent. So we could read that that serpent is Jesus or the savior. And, and we don't do that. That's not how we do it. Yeah. Yeah. We don't do it that way. You know, the, the serpent becomes that thing, which gave evil. Right. And, and this goes back to like the Prometheus myths where, you know, someone who steals knowledge or steals some kind of knowledge and gives it to people who shouldn't have it. Right. And is Prometheus evil? 
is is you know it, it was that uh, was that evil? Well, you know the gods thought so. But in this particular way, the serpent wasn't evil. This was just a, a myth or a, a fable about temptation originally. And over time, though, especially for the you know from the first century BCE until you know right about the second century BCE. This is when we really start to develop, we start to have have records where the idea of an embodied evil being comes into play. And, we're, and you know, we'll get to that with, uh, with how the Book of Enoch and the Book of Jubilee end up taking these stories. But prior to the Jewish captivity into Babylon, Satan wasn't an evil guy. You know, the, the, the Satan, they'll say. So this isn't just Satan as a person or as a title, it's the Satan is how they'll talk about it. And... He's really just kind of the the person who does the things for the god, and and that's how they, they describe him. But it's post exile, so you know if we remember in the Book of Mormon story, you know that period of time, you know that exile when they go into Babylon, and then after about fifty to eighty years, they they're allowed to go back, kind of by way through Syria. And this is where things kind of get muddy because most scholars will say that. This idea of an embodied evil being probably came from the influence of Zoroastrianism up in Persia, you know, up in kind of modern day Iran. And from the influence, because it kind of came up north on the way back in, and they they think there's influence there. But it's really hard to be able to show actual causation. And, you know, this one text influenced this one person, this one person cited his text back to the Zoroastrians. And because Zoroastrianism had the the real first duality of like light and dark, good and bad, where they actually had deities that represented these, you know, this, this black and whiteness, you know, the good and evil. And this just hadn't existed in ancient Hebrew thought up until this point. And so once they come back into Jerusalem, it's really over the next 500 years, well, 400 years anyway, and especially from, from the first century and second century BCE, where all of a sudden this gets infused into the Jewish thought. And then that's when we get into, and we have records of the Book of Enoch and the Book of Jubilee. These are like the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we find these things through the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we're like, where do these ideas even come from? And we started to get all of this given to us when we, when we were able to get all those within the last hundred years from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now we have the, the Book of Enoch, we have the Book of Jubilee, we can look back on them. And this is where we're starting to pull from these ideas, like in the Book of Enoch, we have this idea of fallen angels now. And so this whole concept of like fallen angels into being temporal you know, agents on earth of people who are working against the will of God and who are going out and, and, and having... And having temporal and physical relations with with humans when they're not supposed to, and they're bringing all the bad things when they're not supposed to, and they're kind of reintroducing this Prometheus narrative of bringing bringing all the things to man that they're not supposed to, and this is kind of where we start to get the interpretation of this being who's been cast out of heaven, right? And and we begin to reinterpret, and this is where we start to look back on, like that whole Lucifer narrative from Isaiah. How art thou fallen that you know from you know from heaven? This is where it starts to be interpreted that now there is like this evil being. Now that now there are these evil beings, and we start to see that a little bit more even in the in the book of Jubilee. And in the book of Jubilee, there are is this idea of the treatise on the two spirits, and then there's this other book called the War Rule. And and these things, I, I we don't want to get down to the weeds here, but this is where the ideas and the constructs of 
the duality of good and evil as an embodied text really comes from. And so this is where we're starting to see that distinction now um, come out more fully. Yeah, so it's interesting because our the Christian, if not the Latter-day Saint, in particular the general Christian concept of Satan, that we get from the New Testament doesn't come from the Old Testament. It comes from these extra-canonical writings that you've mentioned, books like the um, First Enoch, Jubilees, and others that, that are found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we don't consider those ideas, uh, we consider them extra-canonical. They're not, we don't accept them as canonical, and yet the New Testament writers use those ideas and develop them, and, and that's the Satan that we get. It's not from the Old Testament. It's not, it is from the New Testament, but it got in the New Testament from the extra-canonical writings that we don't accept as canon, <laughs> and yet we accept the New Testament. It's, it's, it's confusing, isn't it? it? Yeah, it really does. It gets really complicated really fast. Like, for instance, in the book of Revelation, that's one of the places where we get a lot of our ideas of, of Satan from. Like, for instance, in Revelation 12, where it says, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. The accuser of our comrades has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. You know, this idea of, of the devil and of Satan didn't come from the Old Testament. Just like what you said, this idea of the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world who's been thrown down and, and who accuses, this is the idea that comes from these, you know, the Book of Enoch and the Book of Jubilees. And so you're right. These are non-canonical texts. They're not accepted as canonical. <laughs> I'm going to say this right. The, you can do it, Shiloh. These non-canonical. I'm not going to be able to say it now that I- Canonical. Thank you. These texts, are they're referencing back to these texts. And now this is what gets interpreted. So now Christians, after the first century uh, CE, now we have this idea of an embodied evil being who is going out to thwart God's purposes, right? The deceiver, the accuser, all of these things. So this idea of this embodied evil being called the devil or Satan is a really a first century CE construct. And so we're going to, you know, and, that, and, that, and then that infuses into Christianity. And then we start to see the philosophers and the Hellenization of Christianity. They start to philosophize about this, and it really cements that idea, and that delivers unto us, kind of in the present, the idea that we have of this embodied evil being. But when that gets into kind of the Latter-day Saint construct, it, cha it changes pretty drastically and pretty quickly. You know, that, that whole Mormon cosmology and the Mormon Council and how, all, you know, Lucifer and how they treat Lucifer and Jesus, and this really informs why Christians are so upset with Latter-day Saints and how they view Lucifer as a former brother of of Jesus Christ, right? And in how they imagine that just because the Latter-day Saint idea is so foreign to to Christianity about how these ideas enveloped, yet they do still keep this idea of an embodied evil being. Well, let's back up a minute, Shiloh. I want to talk about a little bit about this story that you brought up from Isaiah. But first, let me mention too that you mentioned the the Prometheus myths and whatnot. You know, the these books that we're talking about, like Jubilees and First Enoch, they're actually developing ideas. They're sort of, yeah, they're adding to narratives that are that exist in Genesis. You know, we have the the idea of the of the Watchers shows up in Genesis, but it isn't really 
fleshed out, right? And it's fleshed out in these extra canonical writings. And so then we take those ideas or the, the New Testament authors take those ideas and run with them. And then we get our sense of who Satan is, again, from these extra, you know, via these extra canonical texts, but from the New Testament. And so going back to going back to Isaiah, because I want to deal with Lucifer and the son of the morning. Here you have this text that's dealing with this son of the morning, which is, which is, you know, fallen, which is a Babylonian king is the, is my understanding. And then that gets translated. The son of the morning gets translated in the Vulgate as Lucifer. And then it becomes personified after we get these extra canonical writings that tell us that they're fallen angels. And so now it's not a fallen king, it's a fallen angel. And his name is Lucifer. He's a personified being. Now, this is how this comes about, right? Right. Yeah. And then I, this gets more re-solidified. This idea of Lucifer, of Lucifer is solidified back in, back in the Dead Sea Scrolls here with the Book of Jubilees, because this is where the cosmic conflict between light and dark where you have like the sons of light on one side and the sons of darkness on the other and and where that whole war thing happens you know that idea is flushed out in the 1st 2nd century BCE which then allows for that that lucifer idea that you're talking about to come into flourish as well that, that interpretate that reinterpretation and going back into the old testament but it that idea did not exist when Isaiah is writing the text in in the 6th century BCE right Right. So yeah, it really looks like these ideas come from the Babylonian exile, picked up from the Zoroastrians, right? And yet we it's hard for us to, you know, to see that in terms of to know that in terms of causality. And one of the reasons is simply because there just aren't that many scholars that are studying both apocalyptic Jewish writings and Zoroastrianism, if there are even that many scholars studying Zoroastrianism, which hopefully is having some kind of uh, reinvigoration. Uh, I know you said that there's a program where you're going to school, and hopefully somebody's getting going into that because I think you know there there's there's something to look into there that that we could maybe understand better, and that would help us understand better where we got this idea of Satan that comes into the New Testament from those writings that again look like they come from the ideas look like they come from these Manichaean black and white you know polar opposite Zoroastrian ideas. That are very much part of our experience as Christians, you know, as of what Satan is and, and personified at that, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not a student of Zoroastrianism. And it, for me, going back into my, my history, it is this big nebulous kind of black hole. And it's kind of that way that, from my understanding of it, it's kind of that way in, in a lot of Western scholarship that there's not a really firm understanding of Zoroastrianism. Now, I know there are classes that are taught in theological schools about it, but it's not one of those things that's really adopted to help us really flush out this conversation. So exactly what you're saying here is to be able to take someone who studies Jewish antiquity and who studies Zoroastrianism and to be able to make those kinds of connections, you know, th those kinds of scholars are very rare. So it's really difficult for us to make absolute crossovers. And this is why so many scholars are very hesitant to just come right out and with absolute confidence and certainty saying, yeah, absolutely Zoroastrianism had the direct impact on Jewish thought. But yet at the same time, there are a lot of informed ideas that are connected between Zoroastrian thought and how later Jews began to imagine themselves, began to write in the text. And the comparison there that has been done shows that there's a, a very high level of of correlation between those two events for scholars to be able to say, you know what, 
even though we haven't discovered an absolute direct causal link between the two, there is a high level of probability that Zoroastrianism is what influenced and, and affected the, the way that the Jewish cosmology and this way of seeing themselves with good and evil evolved and came about. And then once that happens, we have a lot of really good documentation about how that then pours over and evolves into Christianity. And so then I guess, you know, I one question I have in mind is, and I, I hope to end there, is what does this all mean to us? But I think before we get to that, we have to go through what happens next with the idea and how that idea develops and is carried forward, the idea of Satan. Well, yeah, you know, in in from Christianity, from the development of this idea in the book of Revelation to to our present day, you know, this definitely goes through the filter of of Dante in, in Inferno and Milton's Paradise Lost. And, and you know Inferno better than anybody else that I know. And so, you know, you'd be very informed to be able to say how that idea of Satan is developed there, because that gives us a really, a really interesting place to begin to see how that intellectual history evolves. And then at that point, we can see that society, there's another scholar that I know we're going to get to, Elaine Pagels, because she writes a very great, she writes a great book about how civilization evolves the idea of evil and Satan down through each generation. But uh, yeah, it definitely goes through that filter of of uh, Dante and and Milton in Paradise Lost. Yeah, let's talk about uh, Dante and, and Milton a little bit and then Pagels. So, you know, I mean, what I can say about Dante and Milton is that most of us haven't, of course, we have, I was going to say we haven't read the extra canonical text. Many haven't read Dante or Milton either. But my point is, is that our idea of Satan isn't even necessarily found in the New Testament. I mean, certainly that, that extra canonical idea of Satan does show up in some sense in the New Testament. It's not that it's not there at all. But some of the ideas that we have don't even come from the New Testament. They come from Dante and from Milton. And so what happens is, as, as these ideas develop is that they just sort of, how should I put it? You know, they they expand and they sometimes they contract and so these ideas develop in some sense they change um they and our ideas the way we see satan becomes influenced by these poets and so there's that and then of course even if we backing up before dante and before milton you'd, you'd be surprised i think you know the, the, i think the listener would be surprised to find that that some of the ideas that that they hold about satan are and that they might think are in the in the in our canon are not, that they're not only in these extra canonical texts, but that they may be where our ideas are coming from these poets, right? But backing up further, you know, all the way back to, um, you know, the, the New Testament period, I think we can see, we can talk about uh, Matthew a little bit in his proof texting, I'm going to call it. And we can talk about how, of, uh, of how Satan, uh, once it's, you know, once we embody evil, that the embodiment of it, even though we have this this figure that's this actual person that we're still going to put it on others, right? That Satan's going, evil is going to be personified by whoever is other than us, right? So we're, if there's, if there's good guys and bad guys, naturally we're the good guys and the other is the bad guy, right? And so thinking about the early Christians, the Jews would have been the personification of evil. And so they, they're the ones that are, that are following Satan, if not Satan themselves, Satan's themselves, you know, they're servants of Satan. 
we, there's this idea that the Jews crucified Christ um, as though they could do that, as though they even had the apparatus or the machinery or the ability to do that. Even if we, even if we recognize that the Romans did it, we can still say, yeah, but they're the ones who made it happen. And because of that, then they're going to be that other that we make Satan uh, personified or at least followers of Satan or something like that. And that's, you know, moving forward from there, we're going to see that in every period of history, and this is where it's going to come closer to us and be more relevant to us and where I hope to end, where what does this matter to me? And how does he, how do these ideas that we hold about Satan affect how we see others and what that can, what kind of results, what kind of negative maybe even unintended or unexpected results that can produce that I think we would, that if I, I think that if we thought about these things, that we would want to avoid them and that we can see our way clear to avoid them by getting a handle on this idea of Satan and where it comes from and maybe the, a better sense of the reality of it, of the, of the historical reality of it. Yeah. I know maybe I should have brought this up in the beginning too, because it, it, it would stand clarification what I'm talking about and what you're talking about, Christopher, this is not theology. You know, we're not we're not trying to engage in like what kind of nature and what kind of being is Satan is Satan real or not. This is a discussion on the how the idea of Satan has evolved. Right. And and, and Right. It's more historical than theological. Right. It's historical talking about the the word about how the word has evolved over time. And or the concept. Or the concept, right? Even. And I think that's an important distinction to make when we're not talking about, you know, the theology. Is Satan a real person? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I have my own personal beliefs on on how I can imagine that. And, and maybe we can talk about that a little bit uh, at the end. And I like where you're going with that, because how you're talking about things is how society, regardless of if Satan is a real person or not, it's how does society construct its own version of Satan and and I and I think where you were going with that because it sounds really close to what Elaine Pagels talks about, and she has she has a book that she she writes on Satan where she takes it as a social history talking about Satan, and this social history that she's talking about says that each generation has its own kind of version of evil, right? There are certain social norms and constructs and morals that one generation will hold more sacrosanct than another generation. You know, and, and it even plays out today. We see this generational war in America right now. You know, we have our, we have our, you know, the baby boomers or, you know, there's that epithet of, you know, okay, boomer. And then we have this thing about the millennials and about how the millennials are ruining the country and about and then the millennials turn around and want to blame the previous generation. Obviously, these generations hold different important moral values, right? They have different metaphysical commitments. And so what we can see, and Elaine Pagel's point, is that every generation is going to have an other. It's going to have someone that, you know, that they otherize. Because a very human effect is to be able to otherize the other person. And by otherizing something that's not you, it helps you solidify something that is you, right? It's a, it's a very powerful and effective way at being able to solidify identity. And I don't necessarily think this is the most healthy way of doing it. But historically, it's been a very effective one. <laughs> so, it's just what we do. It's just what we do, right? And, and so we can see this right now, how Satan has been defined largely by how each generation otherizes its, its antithetical party. You know, for, for instance, the United States was the great Satan to certain extreme 
you know, Islamists. You know, 20 years ago, we heard that all the time, right? And yet America, I, you know, I've heard a lot of Christian pastors talk about how these fundamentalist is Islamists were, were the personification of Satan. Right. Right. And they were doing it to each other. <laughs> That's right. And, and so you had this way that Satan is the embodiment of evil that you see in the other. And, and so that then carries on to the next generation. And so you have Satan in one, and then you have like this, you know, Satan 2.0 and the next generation, the Satan 3.0. And every generation is going to find another other that they can say that that thing over there has virtues and ways of doing things that are evil. And that construct of evil gets then brought into this new version of Satan. And so Satan then becomes this way of otherizing other people. And it really does create a lot of deceit. It creates this type of unity in the faction that's otherizing, but it does so at the expense of disunifying the whole. Yeah, I'm reminded too of uh, President George W. Bush, who, who talked to us about evildoers. Right? This, kind of, this kind of discourse uh, ends up being part of our political discourse. And now you're talking about justifying wars. Th- these wars that supposedly were taught, you know, supposedly we were taught uh, magic and astrology and war from these fallen angels. And now we're going to actually use the, the, the narrative of who and what they are and otherize, you know, the, uh, the, the enemy so-called, right, to be the personification of that evil and then justify ourselves in waging war against that evil. Not, not against, you know, this isn't about politics. It's not about boundaries. It's not about resources. It's about good versus evil in this Manichaean, black and white, Zoroastrian way. And that's dangerous in today's world, if it wasn't dangerous in, in yesterday's world. Yeah. No, I, and we see it going on right now in the conflicts with Russia. There is, you know, the we label the other as evil and 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 the embodiment of Satan, right? And and that's just it helps to solidify our own national unity and our own positionality, and it helps us to be able to do that. But just like I've talked about with nonviolence forever, and and it's not my idea. This is was talked about by Michael Nagler from UC Berkeley, but he talks about how we we have this psychological trigger. We cannot commit violence on another person so long as we see them as human, but it's in devaluing the other person's humanity, whether through language or whether or not through anything else, that once we've lowered them to a, a level that they are no longer equal humans with us, then we can individually justify committing violence on them. And it works in groups as it does it with individuals because groups are just individuals. And so we have to devalue the, the humanness and the humanity in the other for us to be able to commit violence upon them or justify violence upon them. And there's no better way to justify violence on someone than putting them into a category of evil or the embodiment of Satan. So Satan has really become this really great scapegoat for us to devalue the humanity in others, for us to be able to commit violence or to be able to do things on them or, or to come into conflict with them. So it's, it's, it's a really fascinating way about how we can scale this idea in how we react, even at international levels. Yeah, and so you can hear that in the, in, in the quote from George W. Bush, right? It's not just, it's in the word itself and in, in, in saying evildoers. And it's also in, in the rhetoric, in the, in the pronunciation, right? In the, in the delivery, right? Evildoers, right? These are evildoers. And so now we're justified in, in committing violence against them. Now, when they when they committed violence against us, as you pointed out, Shiloh, that's because we were the great Satan, right? And so, what what's good, for, you know, it's tit for tat, right? 
Uh, each each side wants to otherize and demonize. I mean, demon, demonize fits here, that the word fits, right? Demonize the other side. Yeah, that's a really great way of saying that. And so every conflict becomes this cosmic conflict between good and evil. And we're so, there's something ingrained in us that, that we believe in that kind of conflict, that it's, it's a part of all our movies and all our stories, right? It's the good guys versus the bad guys. It's good versus evil. Uh, if we show our children violent uh, television programs or movies, it's okay if, uh, you know, if there's violence because it's the good guys versus the bad guys. It's good versus evil. Yeah. It really has entered the entire structure, the, the habitus, as it were, of our entire understanding as, as a human civilization. And we've really evolved to that, the majority of our of the human population, to seeing it that way. It's, it's very pervasive. And to talk about things in terms of like the nonviolent approach is very counter culture very counterculture and almost counter civilization. If we're, if we're talking about the, the, the underpinnings of what's created and, and upheld civilization and the narratives, under, you know, that, uh, that serve to, to prop up the structures that we have of civilization. So that's one of the things why I value the history and, and kind of one of the reasons when we talked about doing this episode to bring in a little bit of this history is to, is to realize how this idea of evil and the embodiment of evil has evolved and has come down to us in our present time because it affects and influences the way that we act as human beings in this world. And we don't often recognize that we are the recipients of conversations that have been going on for 3,000 years. That that thing that we call reality, that we see as common sense, that we just we just act because it, we cannot see it rationally being any other way is usually within a construct that we're kind of almost like a slave to the past. And we don't even recognize it. That, that these like, conversations that have come down from antiquity are being play it, played out on an individual, communal, and international level, and, and we don't even recognize it. We don't even see it. Yeah, and so, you know, not to deny the reality of, of the constructs, but they are social constructs, right? There is such a thing as socially constructed reality. There's real reality or metaphysical reality. And then there's socially constructed reality, which has no actual metaphysical being, whether or not Satan does or not, this concept of whatever we say it is, because I personally don't have any, uh, any personal knowledge of, of, of an embodied Satan outside of myself or outside of, uh, or outside of those that I've other eyes that are Satan, right? right. <laughs> because of course it wouldn't be me, it would be somebody else. No, but I do want to go on the record as saying, I, I don't know whether there's an embodied Satan any more than I, than I know that there's a resurrection of the body. But I do know that, that there can be a resurrection in the sense of, a, of a, an, an enlightenment, should I say, an awakening, right? An awakening. I can awaken to a new life and, and be in that sense resurrected. I know that just as Jesus said, I can find the kingdom of God within me. And I know that I can find God within myself, whether or not there is a, an embodied God outside of myself, because I am in his image. And that image doesn't have to be uh, a body, by the way. That's in, that image can be that, as, as Elaine Pagels uh, puts it, actually, this energy that's this creative energy that God put in me or that I came out of, that I'm created from that energy. And so that's a part of me, right? And so in the same way, if I'm looking for Satan, again, I may find him outside of myself. Maybe, maybe not. But I can tell you for sure that I found him within me in the same way that I found 
God within me and the kingdom of God within me. I've found that in me. And, and so this brings up the Jungian concept of the shadow self. And the shadow self is a part of all of us. That's, that's our dark side, let's say. We can call it our dark side, like the dark side in Star Wars, right? Only, only on a personal level, rather than putting it out there as some kind of uh, other and some kind of uh, ontological other. So what do I do with this becomes a question. You know, you know, in contemplating Satan, whether or not there is a Satan outside of me, that's, you know, I'm reminded of a, that, that's irrelevant, right? Well, not that it's, it's not irrelevant, but it's, it's less relevant. It's less immediately relevant. I'm, I'm reminded of a question that I saw answered by Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist monk who uh, passed recently, by the way. And, and he's asked this question, you know, should I keep going back to my father when I, this is a young child asking this question, when every time I go to my, I've given him so many chances to change. And every time I go to my father, he hurts me, right? It's just, it's just painful to go to my father. And Thich Nhat Hanh's answer is that, that we have to deal with the father that is within us before we deal with the father that is without us. And that actually dealing with the one takes care of the other. So I'm starting with the man in the mirror. So I'm going on record here saying that if I want to, that if I want to deal with evil in the world, I have to start with myself, right? I have to look at, I have to look at within me. And then it's important, I think, in a union concept, I think that, that we can't say that we're going to extricate ourselves of it because of it, it's a part of us. Right, so it's, it doesn't mean I'm going to, so I am going to embrace it, but it doesn't mean I'm going to go over to the dark side, as it were, but rather that I realize that this is a part of me and that I have to integrate in a healthy way, that I have to realize. I like how Elizabeth Gilbert puts it in her, I think it was in Big Magic. She talks about that shadow self, and I don't know if I'm putting words in her mouth and in, in, in calling it the shadow self. I don't remember if she put it that way, but the same idea, right? This idea that there's this part of ourselves that's this, this, let's say this dark side. So it can come on the road trip with us, but it can't, we can't let it drive and we can't even let it choose the radio station. You see what she's saying? So it's, it's like, we can't throw it out the window, right? It's, it's part of us that we have to bring with us, but we don't have to let it drive and we don't have to let it choose the radio station. Now, I want to go back to something you said right there at the beginning was this idea about being made in the image of God. You know, and, and you and I have talked about this before, and, and you've even brought it up again, in that you know, the Latter-day Saint construct of being made in the image of God, and the Latter-day Saint idea is that that means that God has a physical body and that we're made in that physical body image. You know, he has two eyes, a nose, and a mouth. I have two eyes, a nose, and a mouth, and ten fingers, and ten toes. And I, for the time that that was given, that is, that's absolutely revolutionary, right? Right. But since we've kind of moved beyond that and we've come down the last 200 I mean, almost 200 years within the LDS culture that's important that's the thing that we sell but as i've noticed before is that if i were to tell you that my grandfather was a you know 6 foot 2 that he was large in stature that i share his blue eyes that he had 10 fingers 10 toes you know that tells you a little bit about my physical characteristics but it doesn't really tell you much about who he is as a person, right? You know, he, he had blue eyes. He, you know, he could have been anything. But it doesn't really get at the nature of who and what he is. And when He could have been Ma- Malcolm X's blue-eyed devil. <laughs> exactly right, right? <laughs> white, white devil, right? Blue-eyed white exactly. devil, right? That doesn't really tell me who your grandfather was. It doesn't was. tell me anything. Now, my grandfather was a terribly complex man, and his children had a different relationship with him than his, did his grandchildren. And yet, 
when I say that he was my Superman, and and I I'll always say that that's what he was for me as a child. He was my he was like my anchor, my safe place. He was he was the thing that that while the rest of my life was sometimes in chaos, he was the one thing that I could always look to that was permanent. And and so I I looked up to him, and he was just a, a lonely Utah farmer. He lived out on he lived out alone on his hundred and ten acres or so, so that he had in central Utah until he passed away. And that's where he lived. He didn't have much. He didn't give. It just he he gave what he had, but he didn't have a lot. And well, he had he he had quite a lot. I, I'd say he had uh, X-ray vision, superhuman strength. He could fly. <laughs> I mean, you just told me your your grandfather was Superman. Right. Yeah. You didn't mean for me to take it that way, Yeah, Shiloh? I get what you're saying, right? Because we say things metaphorically, we say things symbolically that present these ideas that just like the scriptures do, and then we take these things literally. And and so when I look there at the end, I liked what you said about being made in the image of God and about the act of creation, because when we look at the very first moment of God in the Bible, it's an act of creation. Like the very first thing we see from God is creation. And so being made in that creation, the very first instance of God on the scene in scripture is creation. And so in coming in to create things with God, what is that going to be? And so when, so now when I look at trying to see the actual nature of God, as opposed to just his physical characteristics, yes, that's really cool that perhaps he's embodied, you know, as just like you said with, with Satan, I don't have any, any experience with the one-on-one relationship of seeing God in, in a bodily form. Right. And I don't know, you know, we don't call, we don't say God is a burning bush. He also showed up as a burning bush, right? But we don't say God is a burning bush. We say God has a body because he showed up for Joseph Smith that way. Right. Right. And and the Mormon cosmology was reworked to to see God in this way. And I'm I'm perfectly fine with that if that's the way it turns out to be metaphysically. But in this idea of being made in the image of God, that has meant more for me personally to see him as an agent of creation and then to and then to live in the image of God as a creator a, and a creator of anything. I have a family. I have four kids. I love them very much. But And that was one type of and a very meaningful aspect of creation for me. Now, my wife did all of, all of the, the major creation. I had very minimal participation. But in... In that active, well, it's cre- an ongoing creation. Isn't it, it is, and I mean, that's what I'm. That's the point I'm getting. About at. Conception and birth. We're talking about. I get credit for. I don't even know if I deserve it, but we're certainly all in this together. I get credit for this, that, or the other that that my kids have, right? That that I cre- I created, and maybe I did create in some sense. Uh, we all are co-creators. We're certainly co-creators with our our spouses and others in our family who participate in this way. All of us. It just seems inescapable that we are creators. That we're we're creating we're we're creating our own lives, yeah, yeah. I I like that. I like that because what that does in being co-creators in our lives, th- this is where I start to see for me, and this is just my own experience on this life and what has been been meaningful for me. I don't get a lot of value or meaning if there is a physical or a non-physical Satan. That, that, that just that's never landed as an important thing for me. Oh, maybe there and is. And maybe there is. Maybe there isn't, but so what? Right. And, and so I'm not, I'm not discounting if there is, awesome. If there is, okay, awesome. I'm, it's like my relationship with the divine and of evil and things like that it has nothing to do with that and it is not necessarily affected and influenced by that. And when I look back on history to see this whole, I'm affected and influenced by external temptations or demons or spirits to get me to do bad things. You know, I, I can we can we can pinpoint where that idea originates, and it's really in the first second century BCE, 
Before then, they didn't even have this idea. And this originates, as you said, in non-canonical, canonical. Holy, why can I not say this today? <laughs> Extra canonical. Thank you. In, the, in these texts, right? And I'm like, okay, that's awesome. If they had an insight into reality that I don't personally have, that's awesome. If it comes out to being that part of my actions have to do with some unforeseen tempter outside of myself, however, I, I don't know how that works about how an outside person whispers or does things or tempts. It's like, I, I can blame myself for all of my mistakes. <laughs> At the end of the yeah, day. the real, the important question is what happens next? Right. Right. And and that's really what where it I is do? for me. Whether or not there is an external force or not, I'm still at the center of the story about what I choose to do. There's a sense in which even though you're uh, created, uh, as we say, you know, by God, you are, and maybe maybe it's because you're endowed with this uh, authority, but your authority, which, you know, auctor, right? It's the same root where we get uh, author. You're the author of your own life, regardless of whether there's something within you or without you that's whispering to you to do the things that we all know that we get those whisperings to do the things that we shouldn't be doing, right? The question is, what story am I going to write with? What, what am I going to do with that? Because between stimulus and response, whether internal or external, there's my choice. And so I have to choose, regardless of where the stimulus comes from, how am I going to act? Am I going to act on that stimulus? Or, or am I going to get let the better angels of my nature? See, now I have angels in me too, right? Right. Yeah, we have both in us at the same time. And and that idea itself comes about because of the Book of Jubilees, that, that idea of those those light and dark agents fighting. <laughs> it's really fun to look back and see where these ideas come from and then how we've reimagined and reinterpreted them and how we live into these ideas today. And and I like how you differentiate and said there's like this metaphysical reality, but there's also these socially constructed realities. And we confuse these two all the time. And right. I don't think that's a problem. You know, it's, 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 I got to be careful how I say that. It's not, I don't think it's an inherent necessary problem. It's a problem when our inability of being able to differentiate those, differentiate those lead us to a place where we lack compassion, humility, love, charity, empathy. When, when those things don't allow us to do that for our fellow men, then it's a problem. If those, if those socially constructed realities are realities that lead us to places of peace and comfort and, and of fellowship and, and unity with our fellow men, awesome. But when they don't serve those purposes, then they become problematic, right? And so it, going back to, you know, another thing we talked about in, in second Nephi 28, you know, there's this really interesting conversation that we have about the devil. And, and it's, it's one of my favorite things. <laughs> it's one of my favorite chapters in the book of Mormon. Um, because this is the book of Mormon purports itself as a fifth century, sixth century text. You know, Nephi is writing this in second Nephi 28. He's writing this as a sixth century Jewish, a displaced Jew who is now in a, in a foreign country, a land of promise in a foreign country. And, and yet the concepts of the devil is talking about here in second Nephi 28 are not contemporary to Nephi in his day and age. Prior to the prior to going into captivity into Babylon, let alone what's going to happen with Zoroastrian, the possible Zoroastrian influence, possible with how that's going to filter out over the next two, three hundred years. The idea of the second Nephi 28 devil is an idea that's really kind of that second century, first, second century C uh, BCE 
concept that comes from like the Enoch, you know, the Watchers and the Book of Jubilees in through a first century CE interpretate Christian interpretation and then kind of evolves into, you know, through that whole Dante-esque and Milton-esque idea into Joseph Smith's day. And and this is a very contemporary view of the devil in Joseph Smith's day. Now, let me just interrupt you, Shadow, to say, it, for the, if the listener didn't follow that whole evolution, the important, well, first you can rewind and slow down and, and write it down. We don't have show notes as of this recording. But the point is that there's a historical development. And so we have this narrative that says that the way that, that, that things are or ex, are explained or interpreted or the, the theology has always been, and yet we see a development in these ideas. And so we see some, even some anachronisms here, right, Shiloh? And, and so the question is, what do we do with that? Yeah, it's, it's what do we do? These anachronisms are things that belong in texts that don't belong to the time frame that those texts were written, that, that they belong to different time periods and that were added or purported to have been existent in, in time periods that they shouldn't exist. And and this is where we get the concept of pseudepigrapha, right? The idea that that uh, a writing is not what it uh, claims to be, right? That it's its authors are not who, are, who who they're said to be, something like that. Sure, sure. And and there's a lot of things, and there's a lot of anachronisms in the Book of Mormon. And and for me, that's perfectly okay. There's going to be a lot of changes that Latter Day Saint culture is going to have to grapple with for the next hundred years, with because of every you know a lot of things coming out with Book of Mormon scholarship, with church history. And with a lot of the way that we do things, there's a lot of Latter-day Saints scholars that says, you know what, the, the, the way that we've talked about things in church history and with what the Book of Mormon is, how the Book of Mormon came about, what it's going to be for us in the future, these things are going to, are going to evolve. And, and for me, that's perfectly fine. Even with my positionality with the church, I still read the Book of Mormon almost every day. No kidding. I do. I really love the Book of Mormon. And it's, it's really this, this narrative that's in my head that I find a lot of value and I use it as a modality of being able to tap into a divine something. And, and so I still even find great value in the Book of Mormon now. And, and so when I read this in 2 Nephi 28, can we read this with certain anachronisms to where this is still applicable for us today? And I really think there is. Of course. So for instance, in verse 19 in 2 Nephi 28, it says, For the kingdom of the devil must shake. And they which belong to it must needs be stirred up to repentance, for, or the devil will grasp them with his everlasting chains, and they be stirred up to anger and perish. Well, first off— Well, that's me. That's me. <laughs> if, 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 you know, if, if that's happening within me, then if I want to get out of that hell, that's, that's this epistemological experience that I'm having, then I have to repent. I have to see things differently. I have to see myself and God differently and, and the relationship between us and the reality of that, and get out of the illusion of my separateness from God or my unworthiness when I'm already always worthy, when God loves me, period. Exactly. And act like it. And act like it. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. great. Yeah, that's exactly where I'm going with this. Because if, if we look at this in a linear historical manner that we go back to, this is Nephi experiencing this time, you know, an answer is, well, Nephi had revealed to him these things that you know, would be these truths that, that would eventually be known. And that's one way to answer it. There, there's a hundred different apolog- apologetic ways to be able to answer this. I'm not satisfied with any one of them, and there's holes in each one of them. But what I really value here is just exactly like what you talked about, Christopher. It's this idea of, of the devil 
first off, that's a Greek word in, in a concept of uh, uh, an embodied evil being that doesn't exist, that won't exist for like 600 years in Nephi's time. And that this devil has a kingdom. You know, this is going to be very revelation-based. Which, which I said it was what I was saying. This is a second, first, second century BCE concept of the devil that's brought into a first century Christian interpretation in the book of Revelation. And that this devil is going to grasp him with chains. And so if we're looking at this as an actual historical reality, it's going to be highly problematic. But if we look at it, just like what you said, Christopher, if we turn this in, in that union type of turning this inside of ourselves, that we begin to see this, this idea, of, and, and this is a modern day construct for us to even be able to do this. This isn't what sixth century you know, Jews would have been even thinking about, at, at least to, to my knowledge. I have not read anything that would support the, this kind of idea of, of existing there. But if we take this kind of Jungian interpretation and we turn this in on myself, and I realize that that devil, that, that accuser, that executioner that's within myself, that consciousness, that, that thing that attacks me every day within myself. Yeah, it's, it's gonna, it, it, those are chains that, that, that bogs us down. You know, I, when I, when I taught seminary for so many years, I'd often ask, why is it so easy to believe all the negative things about ourselves? Why is it so easy to accuse ourselves of all the wrong things? Why isn't it just as easy to believe the good things about ourselves? Yeah. Why is, why is it so easy to, for us to look with justice at ourselves instead of seeing the merciful side out of these things. And in this way, that experience of seeing the accuser within ourselves, that's the raging, you know, verse 21. And for you hold at that day, he shall rage in the hearts of the children of men and stir them up to anger against that, which is good. Well, if, if, if we're just accusing ourselves, the good all the time, in you, that's right. How can we not see the good within ourselves when we're always raging against these, this evil narrative? And it's learning to be able to, in the union sense, he's like, you're never going to get rid of this other, this other shadow, what he calls a shadow or this other black, you know, like the yin and yang, they're circling each other. This, this, if you step back, you're just going to see this entity, but if you get up closer to it, you can see it's this yin and yang, black and white, and you're not going to get rid of it, but how do you incorporate yourself into it? And this isn't giving in to evil. This is recognizing that within our lives, we, for me, this is what Jesus said by resisting, not evil. Resist, not evil. Yeah. Resist, not evil. It doesn't mean to give in to it, but there's this thing that I've recognized in my own life of what we resist persists. Right. It's like fighting that against the temptation and like really fighting against it as opposed to just sitting down and being conscious of like, huh, I'm being tempted right now. And I think this is what Jung meant by integrating the shadow self, right? It's not giving into it, as you said. It's it's just taking an objective look at it and realizing, okay, this is what it is, and accepting it. And it doesn't mean giving in to temptation. I'm reminded of Oscar Wilde, who said the only way to yield to a temptation is, uh, sorry, the only way to get rid of a temptation is to give into it. And by which, you know, Oscar Wilde being the rascal that he was, we assume that he has to have meant that you should give into it. And I don't think he has to be read that way. And maybe that was his intention. But the only way to get rid of a temptation is to yield to it. Temptation is always going to be there. So we have to be able to accept that. We have to, in some sense, embrace that. Oh, yeah, there's temptation. Yeah. Just sit back, like you said, and look at it objectively and say, yeah, it's just how it is. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, th these things in our lives are going to always, always be there. I, I, every day I have 
the inclination, and I'm trying to move away personally from the word temptation, because there's a positionality with that word that doesn't really reflect my own experiences, but at least inclination. And there are some things that I don't want to be inclined to in my life. There's like certain behaviors I don't want to exhibit. There are certain things about my about myself that I'm like, huh, I would like to grow beyond this or to experience something. And like for instance, there was there came a time <laughs> there came a time when I wanted to to get rid of all the caffeine in my life because I was drinking a lot of Mountain Dew, a lot of Dr. Pepper, and I wanted to get rid of caffeine. And so just giving up sodas, cold turkey, and just like resisting it was really, really, really hard for me to do. But I also noticed that when I actually focused on just drinking a lot of water, and, and my intentionality became drinking a lot of water, I wasn't resisting the, the sugary drinks anymore. It wasn't, I was, right. I was, I was, I was, I was focusing on what I was wanting to do, and therefore, I, the need for those drinks, those, that caffeine just wasn't there as much as it was before. And so when I would see it, I, all, all of a sudden it was like, oh, this is an option and I'm not going to choose it. I'm choosing water. I'm choosing water. Yeah. You know, my wife is a health coach and this is exactly the approach that she takes. She would tell you to do as you've done, Chad. say, it's not about, you don't focus on what you're going to eliminate. You add, you crowd it out. She calls it crowding it out. And she has a favorite line from, which is the Star Wars movie, the first one with Ray. It's from that, I think it's from that movie. And there's this line that says that we're not going to win. This is in a quote, just to paraphrase. We're not going to win by fighting against what we hate, but for what we love. Yeah. That's how we win. The battles that we fight in the silent chambers of our souls, to borrow David O. McKay's words. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and that's become the way that I personally have been trying to become more intentional to and present to in, in recognizing that there's certain behaviors and certain things that I'm like, you know what, that just doesn't really lead me to the place that I want to be in my life and something that I want to, I want to experience something else. But yet there are some times where life comes along and is like, <laughs> that's, that, that's not, that's neat of you to be able to think you're <laughs> just let go of old patterns of behavior. Right? And and then life happens and sometimes I can get to the behaviors that I want and sometimes I can't. But also it's that when I return to behaviors that I don't want, or if I were to pick up that Dr. Pepper, that mountain. Like dip, a dog returning to its vomit. Right. Yeah. Something like that. All of a sudden there was no guilt in me having a mountain dew anymore because it was like, oh yeah, it was something that I could choose. I chose it. I, uh, and it was like, suddenly it wasn't the temptation it was before. The inclination was was gone. It was diminished. And that's that first time when it was like, what we resist persists. And then when Christ said, resist not evil, it's not like I'm just going to stare at like the Dr. Pepper, the Mountain Dew all day. And just like, just like, I'm not going to drink you. I'm not going to drink you. I'm not going to drink you. But yeah, you just fill it with this other thing and that went away. And so, and, and even when I had a, a drink or two, it was like, oh, the guilt, the shame, all of that was gone. And, and so for me, that, that's the way that I integrated that you you deal with the fact that Mountain Dew and Dr. Pepper is always going to exist, but I'm focusing on water now. Right. You know, I see a topic for another conversation here and shame and guilt for another episode. That's 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 a good topic too. So, but to take this conversation that we've been having, and by the way, I think we're doing it in the right order here because we focused in on on ourselves and how we deal with evil in that way, what we call evil. How do we now take this concept into from the ethical 
you know, this personal level to the political or community level. And I think it's really important. And I, I love what uh, Elaine Pagel said about this. She said that this idea that we've learned of otherizing uh, others and, and making them the embodiment of evil and justifying ourselves and our violent actions, especially at this international level, to really take it to the to that level of a conversation in a world uh, with nuclear weapons and mutually assured destruction. She says we have to unlearn this. Yeah, that unlearning is really, really, really hard. Um, and and I think in a certain way, Ezra Taft Benson quoted. I forget the guy who he originally quoted, but it was a a saying that I grew up with, and I kind of attributed that I, I tried to live by. And I'm gonna. I'm going to butcher it. I haven't thought about this in so long. It's like, I'm only one person. I can't do everything, but I can do something. What I can do that I ought to do and what I ought to do by the grace of God, I shall do. Amen. And and, and I remembered it. I'm, <laughs> I'm rather pleased. <laughs> um, you have a pretty good memory for someone with uh, without good memory, huh? Right. So the uh, for me, that was this recognition that I'm not going to be the person ever in a seat of a nuclear weapon. I'm that is never going to be a call I personally have to make. But if you mean ever with your I'm, finger on the button. With my finger on the button, right? I'm never going to yeah. have to be the one to to choose whether or not to use or not to use a nuclear weapon. I've just never put my place in a position that that would ever be the case. However, that's why I really like that story about Desmond Doss. You know, it, the Hacksaw Ridge was a movie that was made about him um, a couple years ago. He came from a nonviolent background. He actively said, I'm not going to kill. But yet he still saw that he could be about good in what he was doing. And so he went in as a type of medic. He would go into the line of fire with all of his comrades who had weapons, but he would never, he wouldn't carry a weapon. He wouldn't kill anybody. He wouldn't hurt anybody. He was just going to save. And so, you know, I've been thinking a lot about like with, with the current conflict right now with like Russia and Ukraine and about people who proactively injure other people, what would I do as just one person? Would I actively go in to, to kill one side or the other? It's like, how could I serve both, both sides as a servant of Christ? How, how would I be able to do that? And, and the answer to that, I have no idea. But what I, I value about stories like Desmond Doss is it allows us to be able to reimagine what our place and what our response would be in a way that's different than the way that the nations of the world have created that construct. And then reimagine a world that is different and then being able to stand in that. Now, I don't have the answer to the solution about what that would look like for anyone. I hardly have those solutions on what that would look like for me. That reminds me of the documentary you and I were working on with our friend Jared, asking the question, you know, going around interviewing thought leaders in, in different religious uh, traditions and even, you know, in the military where uh, Jared interviewed a retired Navy SEAL captain, asking the question, is hyperactive nonviolence realistic today? And we got, we always got, when we talked about this, we always got the question, at least I did, you can tell me if, if you did or didn't, is what is what is hyperactive nonviolence? What does that mean? And I always answered, I don't know what it means for you. For me, it means making this documentary. That's, that was one answer, right? And, and so we each have to find our own answer to that question, as you've uh, correctly pointed out. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of the times we want to imagine what it would look like for society to act and operate and do these things. And at the end of the day, I don't know how many listeners, I know I don't, 
I don't have the answer of going out and influencing nations into doing one thing or another. I just have the ability of thinking about what I would do personally and then acting in that. And, and I find that the more we do that as individuals, that does have an effect that does have a ripple effect into the way people around us think. We introduce new ways of thinking, new ways of interpreting, new ways of understanding, and th- our lives matter. Every single one of us, all of our lives matter to the, to the people that are around us. And I know that most of us feel we don't have a voice. We don't have the ability of changing things around us, but we, we have the ability of at least changing ourselves. And that's why I like what you said there about Jung, about turning that inwardness first off in, in changing ourselves. Then after we've worked on that, then if we're in a relationship, maybe we become more peaceable in our, in our personal relationship. Maybe it's relationships with a child. Maybe it's relationships with, with family or it's something else. Maybe it's realizing that we associate in different places and with different people. And whatever it is, whatever we imagine, it will have an effect. It changes things. You reminded me of the of the Stoic concept of the um, these concentric circles that that we have these spheres of influence that, that expand outward. And it's actually fun in Confucius's thought too, right? This idea that if you want to change the world, you really start by changing yourself, and then you change your family, and then you change your neighborhood, and then you change your city, and then you change your nation, and then you change the world. But it's by making these changes at a personal level. So we've really taken the, the conversation, I think, full circle in answering the question of how do we cause change for peace at a at a community level by going back to where we started, which was at the personal level. It has to start with as Michael Jackson put it, the man in the mirror. <laughs> yes. Right? I, I agree. And, and this is a really fascinating way that this conversation has developed. We, I mean, we're talking about Satan and the intellectual history of Satan and about how this <laughs> has developed and come all the way down to us. And this conversation could have gone one of a thousand different ways. You and I didn't plan in the beginning where this was going to end up necessarily. But I think we've hit the main points that we were going to talk about. But what I think is fascinating about this conversation is that whether or not there is this external demon, this external fallen son of God, or whether or not it's an idea, whether or not it's an internal conversation, for me, it's come down to where my experience is to focus on on myself and how I respond to the world. It's a very stoic way of looking at things, but how I respond to the world and that's yeah you're right it comes back to that individual it's about how i respond to the forces of evil that come into this life by looking back through the history of satan i've rediscovered well rediscovered i've discovered in myself certain belief systems and patterns of behaviors and ways of thinking about the world that i'm like you know what uh, that's that doesn't produce good fruit just thinking about things in that particular way doesn't produce good fruit um I think one of the things that you and I had talked about that maybe we haven't addressed is uh, millennialism and about that, that influence, about how we incorporate that idea of Satan into millennialism and how that affects the body politic. I don't think we have enough time today to, to really open that up and to finish that off. But, but that's another aspect of my life where I was like, oh, I can see how my thoughts of evil and of the embodiment of Satan in that particular way was not leading to good, does not lead to good fruit on the whole. 
And, and I'm like, I, I need to change that for myself. You don't want that to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. This idea that, that things are getting worse and that they have to get worse. And then Jesus is going to come. And this kind of, these kind of millenarian ideas, apocalyptic millenarian ideas, right? Where, where we've, you know, we see Steven Pinker's work where he's shown us that, that things are actually getting better. And it's kind of hard to see that, you know, there, there are new evils. Certainly Uh, we see them as, as greater. Sometimes maybe we think of them because they're technological. Um, we, we associate that maybe with the Tower of Babel narrative, something like that. But overall, we can see that things are actually getting better. And that. And the other reason maybe it's hard to see is because whatever evil there is gets magnified. It gets magnified by the media, including now social media. Everyone has a camera in their pocket. So if something bad or wrong happens, we're going to hear about it. But the, the real question is, you know, is there more death? Is there more disease? Is there more violence? And there is violence and there is death and there is disease. But overall, I think it's less than it used to be. And so if we have this expectation, this idea that things are moving in this negative direction, this can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, and, we can, and it becomes easy for us, again, to, to go into this way of thinking of, oh, the, because we're looking for it and we find what we're looking for. We're looking for that Satan out there. That, that evildoer that George W. Bush mentioned, right? And we're going to find him around every corner, and we're going to justify ourselves in, in fighting that battle, that cosmic battle between good and evil, uh, come what may, and we're going to be justified in any action we take because the means justify the ends. Never mind that it's Machiavelli that that idea comes from, not Jesus, right? And that uh, we're going to, what? Annihilate our species? I mean, we, we have the ability to do this now. We live in a nuclear world, and this is not a conversation of the Cold War. This is a conversation for today, where we have a conflict between Ukraine and Russia and talk of nuclear weapons coming into the, into the conversation. You know, this is insane. It's crazy, Shiloh. We have to stop the insanity. It's up to us. It starts with us. It has to. There's nothing else. There's no. There's no other level at which I can operate than at, at the level at the personal level, and then again with Hierocles, you know, expanding outward in that way, or with Confucius. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree. You know, and and I think in a lot of ways, maybe maybe we could at some point and have a conversation about what millennialism means for, to a contemplative. How does contemplation really change how we view millennialism? Because for me, that has been the act of, of meditation and contemplating and, and, and following a path of contemplation has, I, I think, was actually the, the catalyst that broke me free of a millennial view. And I recognized that that millennial view was actually causing me to go further and further down a road where I, I unnecessarily lost my peace. And I realized that the, the, my, my programming, the way that I saw the world or the programming that I saw the world was necessarily leading me down a path of, of not, not of fear, but it was robbing me of my peace. Yeah. And it was through contemplation where I looked back and I said, you know what? I don't need to posit that, that particular. And, and I went back into the, where did the ideas of millennialism come from and how to, and of these types of millennialism. And that's when I was like, you know what? I don't need that in my life. And once I, once I was able to let go of that construct, and then reapproach life. I was like, "Wow, things are a lot better than I thought they were." <laughs> and 
it, it allowed me then to become more present with people. I didn't realize how much just that one idea alone had been divorcing me from connecting with people. And I was able to connect with a bigger group of people and faster and more and more deeply than I ever had before. So I don't know, maybe one day we can open that conversation back up and have that conversation and, uh, and, uh, explore that. Yeah. Meanwhile, go out and meet, uh, meet the Muslims or whoever it is you think is the, 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 the enemy, the other, the evildoer in, in our world, go out and meet them. I, you know, I remember the, I took every semester I taught Islamic ethics at, uh, at UVU, and and I also invited my students from Salt Lake Community College, where I taught English, you know, composition and and rhetoric. You know, I invited them to the mosque for extra credit, and they'd never been to a mosque, and they'd never even some many of them had never even met a Muslim, and they come to find out that these are people just like uh, you and me, right? And always had a great experience, and it was just such. These were my favorite papers to read, were these extra credit papers where they just told told about their experience that experience go go you know create an experience like that for yourself and and your children and let's see if we can make the world a better place amen shiloh thank you so much for coming on and guest co-hosting for riley we really appreciate you uh doing that thank you to uh, your co-founder Lindsay olin for everything she does behind the scenes she is as uh ben peterson of our sister podcast latter-day peace studies presents come follow me and i have said the heart of uh, Latter-day Peace Studies. And thank you to my son, Christian, for editing this podcast. Thank you for listening. And for Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Shiloh Logan.